Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got it! Looking away, McKenna around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! Makes a catch up against the wall, and he's gonna watch it fly. Strike three, called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to another episode of The Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website, it's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You'll find us on the web at www.blessyouboys.com, on Twitter at Bless you Boys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash bybtigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, and uh, doing things a little bit different today for the first time on the podcast, for myself at least, flying solo. Uh, my partner in crime and uh, regular co-host here, Rob Rojacki, uh, as well as myself, both experiencing uh, some much-needed vacation time this week. It uh, just so happens that our, our vacations rather overlapped, and uh, we were originally just not going to do a show this week, but uh, I had the opportunity to uh, do a special guest interview uh, for this week. That's coming up uh, in a later segment uh, during our seventh inning Kvetch segment. Wanted to make sure that we got that recorded and, and put out uh, for the next show, so things being what they are, here we are. And uh, yeah, this is, this is kind of a weird... Uh, <laughs> I'm not used to doing this uh, without uh, having any kind of human interaction, so I think we'll keep things uh, a little tight and close uh, today, a little shorter podcast than probably what we've uh, been accustomed to putting up in the past uh, couple weeks. So, And we've got a pretty good show lined up for this week. We're going to tackle all the usual suspects. We'll go rounding the bases and talk about last week's uh, Tigers games, Justin Verlander's crazy bid for that no-hitter. We'll look ahead to the coming week of Tigers baseball. Got some interesting series coming up uh, against the Blue Jays, against the Kansas City Royals. The Cleveland Indians are coming back to town. I haven't seen them for a while, it feels like. Uh, we'll take our listener questions, as usual, in the Into the Mob Scene at Home segment. And uh, then, as I mentioned, at the end of the show, in our seventh inning, Kvetch, we'll be talking with a licensed healthcare professional who specializes in neurofeedback and EEG training. We're going to talk about what this brain training does for baseball and sports peak performance, and we're going to be answering the question of whether getting angry and smashing water coolers actually does anything to help a player's performance. So all of that is coming up, but first, we need to round the bases when we get back from the break. 10-pound right, he delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone! A home run! Ian Kinsler delivers the walk-off! Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home, and the Tigers take the series from KC. A walk-off home run from Kinsler, 8-6. to six. Well, it was a week of Tigers baseball, that much we can say. It lasted about seven days, I want to say. Our last podcast we recorded was last Saturday. This is now uh, Friday, August the 28th. It's our last Friday in the month of August. That's a little scary. So we saw the Tigers play last week, but it was not a pretty picture. 
from 5-0 and to 10-5 and in Cincinnati. That all happened uh, within the space of one inning. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I happened to be on vacation. That happened to be the one game that I actually sat down and, and had a chance to uh, to watch and to sort of participate in. And I it, it literally happened to sit down right as that fifth inning was starting. Seemed like the team had things in good hands. They were well up on the Reds, had a 5 to nothing lead, and then it all fell apart. And by the time that fifth inning was over, uh, the scores had flipped, and the Cincinnati Reds were leading then 10-5. to That was just, it was a really amazing thing to witness. I saw some uh, tweets going out after the fact, um, you know, just sort of describing how rare of a thing that is for a team to have a 10-run inning like that, how even, I think, rarer it is to go from a 5 nothing lead to a 10-5 deficit. It kind of brings home for me, I think, uh, some of the discussion that's been going on the past couple weeks uh, in terms of really who who do you hold responsible for this kind of thing? And, and there's really the three you know suspects that you can talk about. You can blame Brad Osmus as the manager. You can blame the players for simply not executing in those games the way that they need to. The professionals, they're supposed to know how to get hits, score runs, record outs, prevent runs, etc. Or you could blame the general manager, Dave Dombrowski. He's an easy target now, not uh, no longer with the team. And uh, he's the one that, that stocked this roster with the players that are on it. For me, I think it's it's really not a binary question. It's it's really not an all or nothing proposition. And, and I see some uh, conversation going on that people really don't want to blame Brad Osmus uh, in this really at all. They, they, they want to put the blame on the players and say, look, Brad Osmus is not the one going out to the pitcher's mound and, and hanging meatballs and you know giving up runs or striking out at the plate with runners on base. And obviously, obviously that's true. You don't blame the manager for the player performance, but at the same time, even if he's not the one literally out there on the field performing, he is the one who makes the decisions about which players to put in certain situations. And and I think his track record so far this year and even into 2014 last year is such that uh, he regularly seems to put players in a position where they are going to fail, where they have failed, where he has plenty of data, plenty of evidence of past performance failures, and yet he continues to put the same players in those positions. And obviously we're talking mainly about the bullpen, you know, in this regard. The, the starting pitching in Detroit, obviously this year has been it's been a disaster, and that's certainly not on Brad Osmus. He, he's only got four or five, six guys that he can choose from to go out and start these games. And that's a, certainly a, that's a tough situation for him to be in. Um, and and you, I don't think you can even blame David Dombrowski necessarily for a lot of that because he could not have foreseen, I don't think, that, uh, for example, Shane Green was going to kind of turn into a pumpkin and not be able to perform uh, in the way that he had in 2014. Uh, he should have been at least a replacement level player, and that just it didn't work out that way. You can't blame David Dombrowski for not foreseeing that Justin Verlander was going to go you know, have issues with with injuries and, and tricep problems and, and not be able to really be a contributing player until much later in the season. It's just kind of a, it's kind of a mess all the way around. But certainly when it comes to the bullpen management, we've talked about it on this show repeatedly. That is where I, I think Brad Osmus just shines or doesn't shine. Uh, in in the way that he reveals his in-game strategies and uh, constantly running the worst pitchers in the pen out onto the mound at the first you know available opportunity and holding back his aces until the game is you know it's it's long gone it's it's lost cause at that point and uh, the conversation keeps coming around to this idea that if only Brad Osmus had 
the Kansas City Royals bullpen, then suddenly he would he would look like a genius. He would have options to go to that would make him look very smart. And I keep kind of going back to saying that's not even necessarily true. Uh, we've watched Ned Yost manage that bullpen for the Kansas City Royals both last year and this year. Even having the best arms available to you does not mean that you as a manager are going to make the, the right strategical moves. And Ned Yost has managed to screw that up repeatedly uh, with his own bullpen over the past couple of years. I, I think bad managing beats a good bullpen any day of the week. So blame David Dombrowski, I guess, if you want, for not uh, giving the Tigers uh, a reasonable bullpen, bullpen is the word, bullpen, to work with. Um, but I think even if he did, I, I don't think you have a manager in there right now that would even know what to do with those pieces. Uh, Brad Osmus seems to struggle right now just with simply identifying which innings are the most critical innings, which pitchers are his best pitchers, and matching those two things up. And I don't, I don't think that's going to change, even if he had, uh, you know, six Mariano Riveras down there. Uh, I think you would still see many, many cases in which he would put the wrong guys in at the wrong times or not go to his ace relievers in situations where he needs to. But that uh, is probably neither here nor there. It's just it's just kind of an ongoing conversation, and I uh, I tend to kind of side with this idea that, like I said, it's not a binary kind of equation. It's not one or zero. It's it's all of these pieces that are contributing to the collapse of the Tigers' season this year. And I really do believe that in 2016, we've already heard that Al Avila is is going to be a much more uh, sabermetrics oriented general manager. I, I would have to believe, if I were a betting man, um, that I would put money on the fact that he's probably not going to bring Brad Osmus back. I, I would hope that he is already thinking about potential replacements and will hopefully find a manager. I'm not sure who that is. I don't, obviously, I don't think anybody knows who that is, but I hope that he is able to find someone who is at least not resistant to a more sabermetrics-informed uh, style of play and, and, and strategy. The bright spot, of course, is last week was Justin Verlander and his one game shutout. Now this is this is obviously the one bright spot in the whole week because of the six games that the Tigers played since we last recorded this show, uh they were one in five. Yeah. That's that's not good. Went on a four game losing streak in there and uh Justin Verlander provided the entertainment in that one game. Nine innings pitched, only one hit. That hit came in the ninth inning. He had that no-hitter going all the way into the ninth. No runs given up. He struck out nine, only walked two. He faced 28 batters the whole game. I mean, that's that's an incredible performance. And I said on the show last week that I, I was ready to say Justin Verlander is back. He's returned to form. He's resurgent. He has arrived, but I wanted to see just one more, you know, quality start performance. Show me a performance of six innings and three runs or less. And boy, did he go above and beyond in pitching that one hit game. Thankfully, his offense finally stepped up for him and scored him a few runs and he was able to uh, register the win on that one. But it was just, I think overall, a very, very encouraging thing to see. That's, I want to say three or four very dominant starts out of Justin Verlander now in a row. That bodes very, very well, I think, for the 2016 season. I think that gives general manager Al Avila uh, some, you know, some currency to work with as he figures out how to construct a, a pitching rotation for 2016. I think it, we're at the point now where we can say Justin Verlander can finally be considered the team ace around which you can build a decent, solid starting rotation. And I know that's coming up later in the show is one of the questions that, that we took from Twitter. 
from one of our listeners, uh, you know, about how, how Alavila is going to approach rebuilding that rotation, that starting rotation next year. We'll get into that a little bit more, but I think that's a huge first step is having Justin Verlander coming back. And this is, this is what it used to be, right? Must see JV. You would turn on the television to watch Justin Verlander pitch because precisely of what happened the other night, you never know when the guy's going to walk out there and have a potential no hitter going for six, seven, eight, nine innings. And that happened again, and that felt very good. That felt a lot like the old Justin Verlander. It felt like 2011 again. It's must-see JV. Overall, obviously, that's, that's a very, very good thing. So that is what happened last week. Uh, not necessarily the greatest of weeks, but some shining reasons for hope there in the midst of all of that. Unfortunately, uh, as we record this on Friday afternoon, the Tigers are, in fact, sitting in sole possession of last place. That's really not where we thought they were going to end up. I mean, even if you thought that they weren't going to make a run at another division title this year, I don't know that anybody expected them to be sitting in last place going into the end of August. It has been since, I want to say, 2003, if my research at Baseball Reference is correct, it's been since 2003 that they were in last place this late in the season. And of course, in 2008, they did finish in last place. But even in 2008, by the end of August, they, they, they weren't quite in the basement yet, even if they were heading that direction. So we are witnessing some truly historic moments here in 2015 and not the kind of historic moments that we necessarily want to see. But uh, we'll keep looking ahead to what looks good for 2016 because I, I really do think this has been kind of an off year and things are going to change next year. I, I predict that we're going to see uh, some new faces in the dugout. Uh, I think a new manager, probably some new coaches along the way. We'll just keep looking forward to 2016 and hope that it's uh, going to prove 2015 to be the anomaly that I think it is. So that will wrap it up for our Rounding the Bases segment. When we come back from the break, we'll go warming in the pen and look forward to next week. We'll talk about the one fun thing about playing the Toronto Blue Jays. It's in the fly ball, right field, deep and down the line, and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. They lead it 7-6. And welcome back to our warming in the pen segment when we look forward to the next week of Tigers baseball coming up uh, beginning tonight. It's uh, recording again on Friday afternoon. So starting tonight, the Tigers begin a three game series against the Toronto Blue Jays in Toronto. Then they'll go to Kansas City and have a three game series there and then finish up the week and the weekend next weekend with three games versus the Cleveland Indians back in Detroit. Uh, the pitching matchups, looking ahead uh, to the Blue Jays series, we've got uh, Boyd will be pitching versus R.A. Dickey. you got Buck Farmer going up against Hutchinson, and then Alfredo Simon against Burley. Not the greatest pitching lineup, I don't think, to go into uh, a, to face a team like Toronto that has been absolutely destroying the world in terms of offense at this point. So going Boyd to Farmer to Simonson, those three pitchers in their last four starts have a combined ERA of 6.49. Not exactly good at uh, preventing the runs at this point, these three pitchers. And in the month of August, the Toronto Blue Jays are averaging six runs per game. Yeah, yeah, they're they're really, really doing well with the whole offense thing. I think the one highlight maybe here is that the Tigers will miss facing David Price, although 
I don't know. If you're like me, maybe you wanted to see David Price pitch against his former team. That would have been kind of fun. But let's talk about what is the one fun thing about playing the Blue Jays. Well, it's it's kind of a backhanded compliment, I guess. But the fact that these three starting pitchers for the Tigers have such a high tendency to give up runs right now. Going up against a team that is outscoring absolutely everybody in the American League right now. They're destroying baseballs left and right. To me, that that presents kind of a unique opportunity to enjoy the games from, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's it's the train wreck syndrome. I can't wait to see what comes of Boyd, Farmer, and Simon going up against this particular Toronto Blue Jays offense. I have to believe that there's going to be some blowout games, if not all three of them. Of course, you know, that's just the way things go in baseball, luck being what it is and, and strangeness being what it is in baseball. I'm sure we're going to end up finding one of these games is like one to nothing, you know, or, or two to one game. But I, I wouldn't bet on it. I think it sounds like a lot of fun. Let's let's see what the Toronto Blue Jays can do with their much vaunted offense against these starting pitchers. If I had to pick of the three, Matt Boyd, Buck Farmer, Alfredo Simon, which of those three pitchers would I predict is going to have the best experience, the best outing versus the Toronto Blue Jays. Haven't given that a whole lot of thought, but I'd say off the top of my head, I think Alfredo Simon's going to be the one to surprise us. I, I think he's got it in him as he's shown us at a, you know, on occasion this past season that he, he can go out there and pitch, you know, seven or eight innings and, and only give up three, maybe four runs. He, he had a, a one hitter himself uh, just maybe a week ago. I want to say it was, so my money would be on Alfredo Simon for giving the Toronto Blue Jays a run for their money and hoping to quiet those bats. Um, obviously, the Tigers going in to play the Kansas City Royals uh, after this weekend is it's important in, in some ways just because that's, you know, that's the first place team. Um, you want to say that there's some excitement about that series, but I'm afraid that I think at this point it's just not, it's not the case. The Tigers are so far removed from you know, the, the first place slot right now, I want to say they're 14 or 15 games out of first place in terms of the, the wild card slot. They would have to leapfrog something like six or seven teams right now to even get to that second wild card spot. So it seems more and more as these games go that the season is well and truly over. And yet I can't help but feel a little bit of excitement when they go and play a team like the Kansas City Royals because the Royals have been so good all year. It just It's that little bit of... I don't know, maybe vindication that even if the Tigers are not going to win the division again, if they're not going to the playoffs, it's still fun to see them take on a first place team like the Royals and beat them, which I think they can do. And obviously they have done this year. So I am looking forward to that series, despite the fact that it means absolutely nothing in terms of, you know, the standings and where the Tigers will ultimately end up at the end of the year. And uh, then the Cleveland Indians come to town, coming back to Comerica for next weekend's series. And uh, actually, if I do look at the current standings, I was I was wrong earlier. I misspoke. The Tigers are actually 18 games out of first place in sole possession of last place in the AL Central, while the Indians are sitting at 17 and a half games back, tied with the Chicago White Sox for, I guess you could say fourth place, you could say third place. So however you want to look at that. Uh, either way you look at it, it's it's the Indians versus the Tigers. It's two basically last place teams battling it out to see who's worse, I think, at this point. 
The fun thing to watch in all of this is has got to be the ongoing battle for the, the batting title in 2015. Jason Kipnis currently leads uh, the American League in batting. Uh, his average is somewhere around 325, 326, somewhere in there. Miguel Cabrera has a higher batting average. He's hitting close to 370. I think he's at 367 uh, at the time of this recording. The only problem, as, as we know, as we posted on the site, is that Miguel Cabrera had spent so much time on the disabled list that he does not qualify for the batting title. The good news is he is only, I just did the math earlier today, uh, he is eight at-bats away from the 400, uh, I said at-bats, I meant plate appearances. He's, he's uh, nearing the 400 plate appearance mark. If he gets four at-bats tonight, and tomorrow, that will put him at the required 3.1 plate appearances per game minimum uh, that would then qualify him for the batting title. So that's another thing to look forward to this week and to watch uh, Miggy get himself back into the, the qualifying conversation for the batting title. Hopefully by next week when they face the Cleveland Indians and we get to see Kipnis versus Miggy, uh, I expect by that point that Miguel Cabrera will be fully qualified and uh, the reigning um, batting champion contending at least for 2015 and I agree with uh, Rob Rojacki and what he said last week I think it's pretty well a foregone conclusion that Miggy will win that title again this year so something fun to look forward to uh, even in the Indian series that's what it looks like uh, coming up this week let's watch the Tigers get absolutely destroyed by the Toronto Blue Jays that'll be a lot of fun if you're into that kind of thing uh, we'll watch them take on Kansas City and root for them to absolutely destroy the Royals, and then everybody will be scratching their heads and wondering how it is that they can beat this first-place team and yet still be sitting in last place. And then uh, then we'll watch Miggy versus Kipnis after that. It'll be it'll be a good week. you, you got to find things, I think, at this point to root for, things to get interested as the season winds down. And, boy, if, if you're listening to this podcast, I, I have to tip my cap, honestly, because the, I think the only thing worse than bad baseball and your team performing poorly has got to be listening to somebody talk about bad baseball. So uh, definitely appreciate you tuning in for this podcast. And uh, wow, 2016 really can't get here soon enough, can it? Well, that'll wrap it up for our warming in the pen segment. When we come back from the break, we'll look at our high and tight segment and talk about how to avoid getting killed at a baseball game. A fly ball, center field. This one's deep. Going back, Borges at the warning track. Looking up, and it's gone! A home run! Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. All right, we're back from the break into our high and tight segment. What's hot in the news this week? Well, the one thing that seems to stand out the most, and this kind of goes back to a week ago Friday, uh, when there was yet another fan, this time at Comerica Park, who was injured by an errant line drive foul ball. So she was uh, hit in the head with a foul ball, line drive, uh, had to be tended to by the medical professionals there. I want to say that I think she had to be removed from the game and given further treatment. Thank God she was okay. But this is just one more occurrence in a string of occurrences that seems to be coming to the forefront this year. Fans getting injured by foul balls, by baseball bats being flung into the stands that you know they slip out of the players hands it just seems like it's been a much bigger issue this year than in years past even though it's obviously been something that that's gone on in the game for years 
But Major League Baseball is having to, I think, pay attention to it now. And we had uh, two of our own, you know, Detroit Tigers and Justin Verlander and Nick Castellanos speaking up about this uh, very loudly after that game and saying Major League Baseball has to do something to protect these fans. Uh, and the, obviously the the issue at hand is whether or not to extend the netting that sits behind home plate to extend that at least to the dugout area, if not all the way down to the foul poles in the outfield. It seems to be a very divisive issue, and I, I am trying to understand both sides of it. Obviously, the one side that is very much in favor of extending the netting it makes sense why you would feel that way. We don't want to see people getting injured. There is the very real possibility of you know serious injury taking place. Yes, you could die if you got hit with a baseball that was traveling at 105 miles an hour, which it does come off the bat at that hot of a speed. There, there's a very real risk of injury. So it does make sense to argue very loudly and strongly and say we need to extend the nets. Major League Baseball has got to put up you know, wider nets, longer nets, do something to protect the fans from this, you know, this inevitability, really. It's it's going to keep happening. And uh, fortunately, MLB has been able to avoid, you know, serious, serious injury or, or death at this point. But I think the fans and even the players are starting to say, let's take the safety measures now before it gets to that point. And, and yet there, there is another side to this, argument and that's the part that I guess I'm trying to understand a little bit and when I look at you know my own reaction to the idea of nets being put up certainly there's the issue of visibility you know it's I don't want to be staring through a net uh, when I when I watch a baseball game I want a clear view but here here's the thing from my personal experience I go to a lot of West Michigan Whitecaps games here um, at Fifth Third Ballpark if I can I always buy the tickets that are behind home plate anyway I just, I prefer it. I prefer that angle. I prefer to see pitchers throwing the baseball, you know, from that perspective. It makes it easier to see the way the balls, you know, twist and bend and break. And the whole game, obviously, I'm watching from behind a net. And it doesn't seem to be a problem. I I have never had an issue with, oh, I wish they would take these nets down. (laughs) Certainly not behind home plate. I don't want them taking those nets down. But what I'm saying is that I voluntarily will buy the seats behind the netting and and have zero issue with it. So it seems like that should not be, you know, a, a point in favor of not extending the netting. I don't think it would really be that big of a deal to have the nets extended even out to the foul poles. Perhaps the issue might be that, hey, part of going to baseball is the the excitement, the chance, the opportunity of maybe catching one of those foul balls. And maybe I don't want, you know, the extra netting going up because then I, I'm not going to catch a foul ball. And that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, I get it. That's that's part of the experience. When I go to baseball games at Comerica, I have never sat behind home plate. I'm usually somewhere down the first baseline or the third baseline. And, you know, it's part of the experience. For me, I like to go and bring my baseball glove. And, you know, when that happens, I'm obviously paying attention to every single pitch being thrown because I'm well aware of you know, the possibility, a screaming line drive foul, you know, yeah, I want to be prepared for it. I want my glove on. I want to be able to snag that thing and protect myself or the people sitting around me. And people are generally appreciative, you know, the fans that I end up sitting next to, and they notice that I've got the glove and I, I, I've had comments 
made to me in the past of, oh, good, you've got that. You know, if you'll, you'll make sure to protect me then, won't you? And it's, yeah, absolutely. It's it's something that you've got to be aware of, I think, in the current circumstances. But would would extending the netting ruin that experience in terms of, well, now you're never going to catch a, a foul ball? And I, I think, no, probably not. It's You're not going to have to deal with line drive foul balls. And the nets, are I don't think, are going to be high enough that they're going to prevent any and every foul ball from getting into the stands. So really, I think you're still going to have the opportunity to catch a foul ball, but it's going to be the right kind of foul ball. It's going to be the nice, you know, lofting fly ball, the pop fouls that you actually have a chance to prepare for and, you know, to whatever degree you can maneuver in those seats, you know, kind of get under it or prepare for its landing. I really don't think it would ruin the experience even from that level. I, the the final part of this backlash against the netting argument, I think, it, it, this is something I've experienced multiple times as well. It's just simply that in going to these games, for whatever reason, I'm I'm probably in the rare you know class of of person that goes to the games to actually watch the games. When I go there, that is the focal point. I do not get up from my seat uh, during innings. For any reason, really, even to use the bathroom. If I have to go, then I, I wait until the inning is over. But I do that more out of, you know, what I call proper ballpark etiquette anyway. I, I think it's polite to the fans around you that you not be making everyone get up and shuffle around in their seats while there's live action play going on because these people paid for their tickets and they wanted to see the game too. That uh, kind of courtesy seems to be, I mean, in my experience, it's kind of a rare thing. Uh, when I go to games... It's, it seems like it's constant. It, people are constantly getting up and down uh, to go get food or go get a beer, or go use the bathroom or go check the souvenir shop or for whatever reason, people come over and, and visit with each other and they're standing in the aisles. And I was at a game once where, where a gentleman came down the steps and stopped at the end of the row in front of me and proceeded to carry on a 15 minute conversation with a friend of his that he'd just run into at the park. And they were like, they had their phones out and were showing each other pictures of the kids and stuff. And this is all while the game is actually going on. Pitches are being thrown, balls are being hit. I I don't understand the point. I don't understand why people do that. I don't understand why they go to the game and do seemingly everything except watch the game. I, I really don't understand why the ballpark allows vendors to go up and down the stairs, you know, between the rows through the entire game when there is live action going on. It seems like that would be a safety issue for the vendor workers. And maybe I'll do some research on this, but I'd be curious to know if uh, the people working in, you know, as vendors, if they have any kind of uh, clauses in their contracts that deals with what happens if they get hit with a foul ball, what happens if they end up having to go, you know, on disability for a few weeks? Is there, is there some, uh, you know, compensation, I guess, provided for them in their contracts if if that happens it just seems to me that there are a lot of distractions built in at the ball game a lot of fans that go and just don't pay attention they're not even seemingly there to watch the game that gets frustrating and yet I feel like maybe that issue is wrongly bleeding over into the other issue of whether or not the nets should be put up and that's why I think you get people saying hey if people are getting hit by foul balls then they need to pay attention yeah, people do need to pay attention. People do need to go to the game and be courteous to those sitting around them and practice good ballpark etiquette like I'm describing. But at the same time, as some of the players, Justin Verlander and Nick Castellanos, have have even pointed out, if you're dealing with a, a baseball flying at you at a line drive angle, you know, 95 to 100 miles per hour, it doesn't matter 
if you're paying attention or not. You're probably going to get hit. You're probably not going to be able to snag that that ball as it's coming in. The players have that problem themselves as they're sitting in the dugout and, and might catch an errant line drive going into the dugout. They have a hard time reacting to that you know, in enough time to protect themselves. So there's two issues I think at work there that are getting conflated and both have their points, but really the fact that too many fans go to these games and don't pay attention. Yeah, that's a problem all by itself. And that should, you know, be something that's addressed in some way, even if they do decide to extend the netting. Uh, Unfortunately, I I kind of feel like once the nets go up and they extend down to the foul pole, uh, you know, the problem with fans not paying attention during the game and, um, not practicing good etiquette is probably only going to get worse. But, you know, if if the flip side of that coin is people maybe dying at a ball game or people being seriously injured, I think you have to side with, you know, the idea that Major League Baseball needs to extend the netting. And it sounds like that's the direction they're going. Uh, there was just an article at Fox uh, foxsports.com. Ken Rosenthal was writing about the fact that uh, the Philadelphia Phillies are making plans currently to get the nets extended in their ballpark. Uh, They're just simply waiting uh, to coordinate this with Major League Baseball because there's some speculation that MLB will be uh, coming up with some new regulations in the coming year, and the Phillies want to make sure that what they're doing ends up falling in line with whatever it is that Major League Baseball decides to do about this issue. But it sounds like the plans are in place. It sounds like this issue is going to be resolved, and uh, hopefully... You know, it gets resolved quickly and, and before there's any more incidents like this of people getting hit with baseballs or hit with uh, baseball bats flying into the stands. Uh, and that that's obviously that's a very good thing. It, it's something that's been needed to be addressed for quite some time. It's being addressed. But I'm still going to say if you're a baseball fan, please pay attention. I know it may not make a difference if you're dealing with a line drive foul ball, but for the sake of those around you, for the sake of good baseball etiquette, you know, watch the game. It's it's actually a good time. It's way more interesting than whatever else you've got going on around you. And until they do extend the netting, have some fun and bring a baseball glove. You might actually catch a foul ball, and I think the proper etiquette on that is that you're supposed to give that then to a kid who's sitting next to you unless you're like me and you have kids at home that would want that baseball in which case take it on home anyway have fun at the ballpark and please be safe and that is going to wrap it up for our high and tight segment when we get back from the break we'll go into the mob scene at home and take some listener questions we'll be talking about who is the one free agent that the tigers should sign in 2016 Swing the fly ball, left field, deep, going back, Cabrera, looking up, and it's gone, a home run! James McCann with the walk-off winner, number three, rounding third, exchanges the low ten with Dave Clark, and into the hot seat at home. Welcome back from the break. This is our Into the Mob Scene at Home segment where we take listeners' questions. You can get those questions to us online at uh, Twitter at Bless You Boys. You can send them to me directly at HooksLyBYB. You can send them to Rob Rojacki at BYBRob. We've got a Gmail account set up for this. That's uh, BYBTigers at gmail.com. Lots of ways for you to get your questions to us for the podcast uh, to keep this segment fresh and fun and exciting. I'd like to get a little bit of interaction with our listeners. And the first question that uh, we've got here is from Matt Little on Twitter at M underscore A underscore T underscore T underscore L. 
<sighs> now I feel like the goose from uh, was that book Charlotte's Web. T double E double R double I double. Yeah, you, you get the idea. Matt asks, have there been any rumors of Tiger prospects coming to play winter ball in Australia this year? That's a good question. I, I pitched that question to both of our um, minor league insiders here at Bless You Boys, both Emily Walden, who does a lot of work here in West Michigan with the Whitecaps, and uh, Cameron Kaiser as well, who has done some work this year with the Toledo Mud Hens. Kind of sounded everybody out on that question, and uh, the short and simple answer is no. There haven't really been any rumors yet, uh, necessarily, of prospects uh, in the Tigers system going to play winter ball in Australia. They do have a couple players in the system who are Australian-born. Uh, Zach Shepard comes to mind for the Whitecaps. I'm not really sure if that makes it any more or less likely that someone like Zach Shepard would, would go and play in Australia, just the fact that he's you know from there. Uh, but there's maybe that possibility. But no, the long and short of it at this point is that there haven't been any uh, rumors that, that we're aware of, at least, of uh, Tiger Prospects going to play uh, winter ball in Australia. Team draft position at TigerFan underscore PJK asks, does Verlander returning to form alter the offseason strategy for Alavila? And also, what did the Tigers do with Victor Martinez? Well, the first question, yeah, as I alluded to earlier in the podcast, uh, Verlander is back. He is back to form. He is dominating again. I think that seriously alters the offseason strategy. Uh, the the one thing you got to start with, I think, in building a competitive team that you want to go deep into the playoffs in 2016 is it's the Dave Dombrowski method of building it around starting rotation. You have to have a good starting rotation. Pitching wins in the playoffs. It's it's a very important component. And right now the Tigers don't have a very good starting rotation. That they've got one of the worst certainly in the American League, maybe in all of baseball. I haven't looked at the at the particular numbers you know recently, but we know from watching the games, it's it's not a good starting rotation right now. They have absolutely have to fix that in 2016. And if you're going to build a good five-man starting rotation, you need a couple of solid building building blocks to start, you know, sort of building around. And I think having Justin Verlander in a position where he can be counted on as the team ace answers a very, very big question. It saves you from having to go out, I think, and spend big money that the team doesn't really have we've talked a little bit about that before too just the the, the situation with their payroll and the fact that they've got a lot of money tied up in a a very small number of players any numbers that I've run have suggested that they basically have three to four million per player to work with right now it's not a lot I don't think you're going to see them go out and sign you know a top shelf starter having Verlander in that position though saves them from even having to worry about that so yes uh, Verlander returning to form absolutely alters the uh, the offseason strategy it, it takes one more thing you know off I should say one less thing for Alavila to worry about he can focus on other areas as for what the Tigers do with Victor Martinez I think that's a reference to the fact that he's been struggling at the plate um there's really nothing you can do with Victor Martinez, though, at this point. The Tigers have thrown their lot in already. They've offered him that contract. He's under contract for the next couple of years. They're not moving him. I just I don't see that happening. So it's it's basically they got to work with him. They got to work through whatever issues he's having at the plate. Uh, you know, he he's coming off an injury this year. He had surgery uh, preseason. He was not necessarily given enough time to rehab from that surgery before he started playing. 
So spent some time on the disabled list and now is kind of struggling to get back to form and stay back in form. He he had a good run there for a couple of weeks where it seemed like he, he had figured things out again. But I think it's going to take some time. And I think going into 2016, hopefully we'll see some improvements. I, I have every bit of faith in Victor Martinez as a veteran, as you know, a professional hitter that he'll he'll get this stuff figured out but you know in terms of options I, I don't think there are many i don't think the tigers can can offload that contract i'm not sure that anybody would necessarily be interested in it at this point so uh, expect victor to stick around in 2016 and you know i would i would put the odds slightly in his favor for being able to turn things around and perform at a much more consistent clip in 2016 mr detroit at Detroit Larry 17 asks who is the one free agent you want the Tigers to sign also pick one impending free agent to keep well that's that's an interesting split question I think the one free agent that I would want the Tigers to sign going into 2016 and I know it's there's varying opinions on the likelihood of this happening for me it's Ioannis Cespedes I really enjoyed him in a Tigers uniform this year, I was looking forward to being able to watch him play for Detroit all year. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. They were, you know, forced into a position where they had to to sell at the deadline. So he's no longer with us. But from all reports and indications, he enjoyed playing in Detroit. Uh, he wants to come back to Detroit. There are some, you know, people in the media, I think, with with well-connected sources that are saying it's it's a fairly good chance that he is coming back. So. Uh, we'll, we'll wait and see what happens, but yeah, that's the one free agent that I would want them to sign. If I had to pick one impending free agent to keep, and I'm sure this is, I know this is a polarizing kind of an answer. Some of you will hate me for saying this. Some of you will be absolutely on my side, but I, I would like to see them keep Alex Avila. And I I got to tell you, I don't think it's going to happen. I think general manager Al Avilo very much wants to distance himself from that situation uh, in terms of, you know, there being absolutely no hint of nepotism going on. He spoke out against even drafting Alex Avila when they first drafted him, I think for that very reason. Uh, so I think, you know, first opportunity he has to, to put some safe professional distance there. I think he's going to do it, but I do wish that that they would extend Alex Avila or or make him an offer in 2016, just because I, I think as a veteran catcher, he does still bring something to the table. He calls a great game. He works with the young pitchers very well. We've documented some of those instances in posts on the Blushy Boys website. You know, times like when Daniel Norris, for example, was going out there and, and throwing pitches that were getting, you know, smacked around pretty hard. And Alex Avila was able to kind of work with him between innings and, and start calling for a different set of pitches. And, and I think Alex Avila is good at recognizing those things. I think he calls a great game. I think James McCann is a very, very promising catcher that will, you know, slide into that full time slot. But to have the benefit of a veteran like Alex Avila that can help along what is a young pitching staff. They, they have some new prospects coming up. That I think they're going to rely heavily on a couple of those guys going into 2016. I think it's to their advantage to have Alex Avila be there uh, to work with those players. I, I just don't think it's going to happen, unfortunately. And, and yes, I realize that he's struggling more so this year than probably in any other in terms of his uh, offense. But, you know, the numbers are the numbers. He still puts up a decent on-base percentage, especially against right-handed pitching. So, I mean, there's some saving grace there in that. But, I mean, obviously, that's not the reason why you would 
keep him on you know on the roster it's it's more for his presence uh, you know as a catcher as a game caller as um you know a, a defensive catcher even and a pitch framer and all those other good things that we talk about on the site some of those intangibles that we haven't quite been able to put numbers around but uh, you know like i said i i really don't see him coming back no matter how much i would think that would be wise for them to keep him randy for cy young at tigers fan 2015 that's that's great randy for cy young you're obviously referring to to randy wolf awesome uh randy for cy young asks which starting pitchers if any do the tigers target via free agency or a trade in the offseason well as i said earlier uh payroll is going to be an issue uh, in this case i don't know how much Mike Illich and Chris Illich are willing to spend above and beyond what they already have, um, you know, for the 2016 roster. And yet they, they already have so much money locked up in Miguel Cabrera and Victor Martinez and Justin Verlander, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think they have a ton of capital to work with. Um, I, again, don't think that they're going to end up targeting one of these top shelf pitchers like Johnny Cueto or David Price. Uh, I doubt that they get themselves locked into a very expensive long-term contract like that. But there are other starting pitchers uh, coming into free agency in 2016 that I think are a little more affordable and at least, you know, replacement level. This might be a controversial pick, but I I really do think that Doug Fister would be a decent option to pursue. Uh, he was good with Detroit. I know he struggled in 2015. Um, he had a much better 2014. Here's, here's the thing with Doug Fister. For a guy who relies so heavily on weak contact and ground balls. He is absolutely suffering in Washington with a team that is, the last time I checked sometime last week, had posted a negative 24 defensive runs saved. I think Doug Fister would get much better defensive backing in Detroit. I think that would do a lot to make him a better pitcher, uh, to make him a more effective pitcher. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't go after him despite the struggles that he's had this year. I don't think that's indicative of his, you know, capabilities overall. So uh, the, the one starting pitcher I think maybe I would be happy to see them go after is is Doug Fister. And finally, Patrick Whelan, that's yes, that's our Patrick, Patrick who writes for Bless You Boys on Twitter at P Diddy Way wants to know which tiger is most likely to win the Chubby Bunny Marshmallow game. Yeah. All right. So this is a serious podcast and we do serious analysis and I can't wait to answer this question. If you're not familiar with the Chubby Bunny Marshmallow game, this is a game that uh, I played when I was probably in fifth grade, sixth grade, probably not since then. The goal of the game is you get a bag of marshmallows, you get five or six contestants. You say the, the phrase chubby bunny and then you stick a marshmallow in your mouth and you try to say chubby bunny again, but you have to be articulate enough that everybody can you know sort of understand what you're saying. And then you just continue to add marshmallows. You keep stuffing marshmallows in your mouth and continuing to try to say chubby bunny, which, you know, by the time you get to eight, nine, ten marshmallows is just it's a slobbery, drooly, disgusting mess and nobody can understand what you're saying. It's chubby, chubby, chubby bunny and so on. So the winner of the contest is the person that can stuff the most marshmallows in to their mouth and still be able to say chubby bunny in a way that everybody can understand. So with the rules explained, which tiger do I think is most likely to win the chubby bunny marshmallow game? 
I, I'm going to tell you, we, we talked a little bit about this behind the scenes at Bless You Boys. My first pick is probably Miguel Cabrera, just because I've, I've seen him, you know, screaming excited. He has a very, very large mouth. So potentially he could fit a lot of marshmallows in there and, and take that trophy home if he wanted to. On the other hand, and this is an actual thing that happened when I played the game as, as a kid, we had one kid in the circle who, for whatever reason, it was just kind of a mush mouth and, and had trouble articulating and, you know, it was a mumbler anyway. And it, when it came, when it came time for his turn before he'd even put the marshmallow in, he had to say chubby bunny and it came out so garbled that we said he was out and he complained. He said, I don't even, I haven't even put a marshmallow in yet. And in the case of Miguel Cabrera, he does kind of tend to slur his English a little bit at times when he's maybe not being particularly careful with his enunciation, he can slur some words. So you never know. He might be the one to be eliminated in the first round before he even gets a marshmallow in. And by the way, Patrick told me behind the scenes that, that he would pick Tyler Collins as potentially a sleeper candidate to win that game. Boy, I I can't wait to hear the feedback on that question. Please leave your comments uh, in the post when we post the podcast, I want to know who you think would win the chubby bunny contest uh, that's currently on the Tigers roster. And on that note, we wrap up the into the mob scene at home segment. When we get back, we will take on the seventh inning Kvetch and talk about this question. Does getting angry really help a player perform any better after the break? Three now. Here's the two, two. Oh boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor, not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh, and Victor got tossed. Wow. Well, we're into the home stretch now with the final segment of the podcast, the seventh inning Kvetch, that part of the show where we get to talk about Pretty much whatever we want, up to and including good brownie recipes. But none of that today. Today we are talking with Monica Michael, LPC, a licensed professional counselor who specializes in neurofeedback training or brain training using EEG technology. You can find out more information online at www.monmichael.com and on Facebook at facebook.com slash ICSGR. Monica, thanks for joining us on the program today. Hey, thanks for having me here with you. This uh, EEG training and uh, neurofeedback training, however you want to call it, has uh, it's cropped up, it seems like, uh, a couple different places now. I've seen it advertised around town or talked about on different sports shows. Our, our mothership, SB Nation, just did a piece uh, last month. It was called Take Me Out to the Brain Game. I'll try to include that link in the show notes, uh, where, where this was the, kind of the topic. Now, uh, before we get into the specifics of, of how neurofeedback training applies to sports, Kind of, let's take a step back and tell me a little bit more generically about what is neurofeedback training. What's that look like? What does a typical session do? Okay, well, I think probably the easiest way is sometimes to use metaphors, but let's just start with saying uh, neurofeedback is brain training. It's using computer technology to exercise the brain to a point that that nicely regulated, well-exercised brain is going to give you better behavior, better moods, and better thoughts. So, yeah, a a regular client would be sitting down to, um, beside a computer, I should say, 
and have some electrodes hooked to their head. And those electrodes are sending information to the computer. There's no electricity going to the brain from the computer. But the computer reads what the brain is currently doing, how it's functioning, and what kind of electrical energy it's putting out, and uses that information to show the brain in a different way what it is doing. Okay, so you're basically, when you talk about this software, this laptop, you've got electrodes connected, you're basically recording EEG, I don't know what the technical term is, the, the wave patterns, basically? Yes, brain wave patterns. Yep. Okay. And so you can record, in a sense, and measure how the brain is responding to different stimuli. I mean, explain how that, am I going down the right path? Yeah, you're kind of going down the right path. We are just watching, and rather than recording, we're, we're watching what the brain is doing at that moment. But honestly, it doesn't matter if I know what that brain is doing. The computer is doing all the work for me. So it's taking that information and going through um, some mathematical equations, and then it's showing the brain what it's doing. So we always call it like it's giving the, uh, the brain a mirror. And um, what does that mirror look like? Well, the for the client, they're sitting in the chair and they're just watching their favorite video or they're watching something that looks like a video game. And all the while, the, the brain itself is controlling what they're seeing on, a, on the screen. So uh, the brain can make that airplane in the video go faster. It can change the sound that's coming out of the speakers. Um, so we have several different ways for the brain to understand at a very subconscious level what it's doing. But what I like to say is better than anything, we're giving the brain control of something outside of its own body. Hmm. So imagine if you could um, turn the light switch on and off with your brain and never have to touch a, a switch to do it. Well, you'd be sitting there for quite a while just practicing that now, wouldn't you? <laughs> right. So now we're getting into telekinetics. You heard it here first on the Voice of the Turtle <laughs> podcast. This is the next up and coming thing. It's a brave new world. It's Aldous Huxley. It's all this good stuff. Uh, let's let's talk further about this because outside of the sports world and what they call peak performance training, I've seen that used you know on billboards around town. How would this EEG neurofeedback training apply to someone like me as a writer who you know sitting down trying to focus on analytics and math and writing uh, you know sort of posts that focus on numbers and metrics that kind of thing? Does it does it work for someone who's not a baseball player? Oh sure, works for anybody that has a brain. So uh, there's a big assumption there. We'll start with that. <laughs> Give me like three seconds to just run through all the jokes in my head. Okay, go on. Sure. So anybody that has a brain, if we can teach that brain and give it the practice it needs to be better regulated, then it's going to do everything that it does in a better way. So somebody like yourself, a writer that needs uh, quite a bit of concentration and it needs to zone in on what you're um, thinking about and how to phrase those words and all of that. Well, you need access, smooth running of the brain to access all of that. And, um, you know, a well-regulated -regu brain is going to access that much faster, more smoothly um, than one that's dysregulated, where thoughts are running or racing too hard or not flowing fast enough. Um, or you're, oh, you know how it feels when you just know on the tip of your tongue where that word is or what you were thinking about. Um, well, it's, it's less of that. It's more smooth running and better access to everything that's in that brain. And how many neurofeedback sessions typically does it take to kind of begin to see the results of that where you're talking about getting into more of a, well, we'll call it peak performance, even though we're applying it to a non-sports term or environment rather. Uh, so as a writer, 
how many sessions do I need to go through before I can, you know, craft those fart jokes faster? <laughs> so, you know, it might be a two-pronged answer. The The first answer that comes to my mind is I expect clients who come to me to have um, improvement within the first session. I expect them to be able to have measurable, significant changes in um, in many things, Um on the other hand, I also know that because this is exercise and it truly is learning for the brain, then, you know, practice makes perfect. Being able to reinforce that message again and again until the brain takes it and does it on its own without the extra help. It, generally, what we're looking for is a minimum of 20 hours of brain training. So in 20 hours, everything's running smoother. It's more of a muscle memory thing at that point? Well, that's an interesting uh, analogy, and I'd say probably that's pretty accurate. As, um, and that's not, you know, that's the minimum we're looking for is 20 hours of training, lots of things that can come in uh, to make that different, uh, maybe needing more depending on whether a person's on medications or they have any kind of physiological things that are kind of fighting us on this. But, but really, for the, the typical um, client, 20 hours is going to get you an awful long way. Okay, that that helps explain it a little bit. Now, to go from the generic to the specific, because our audience obviously here is uh, much more interested in, in sports and baseball specifically, uh, as I've alluded to earlier, I've seen billboards around town, I've seen pamphlets, I've seen it on different websites, maybe uh, advertising what's called peak performance training. Uh, what can you tell me about peak performance training in sports generally, and, and maybe specifically what that is in baseball? Yeah, uh, what I would say is using that same technology of asking the brain to be more regulated using neurofeedback. Um, there, this has been being used for a long time, um, and particularly the people that would use it is those who are hoping to actually um, make money with their sports sport ability um, or make it into college with a nice uh, scholarship. Uh, so. I would say that's who it would interest more than any, but it's been being used in uh, soccer, hockey, um, the Olympic, um, uh, different sports in the Olympics, Um, the NBA, the LGPA, the PGA. I'm just saying across the board, Mm -hmm. uh, it's really being used uh, a lot. I wanted to dig a little more into this article that was published at uh, SB Nation last month where they talked about a couple of researchers who are using this technology. They were uh, using it specifically with uh, Bradley University and some of the baseball coaches there. And uh, just looking through some of the notes on this article, basically what they had done is they'd sat down and used uh, EEG capturing technology to measure the what they called the neural decoding performance of a uh, an offense player, a hitter. And he was taking some kind of a, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but it was, it was kind of a simulation uh, where he was looking at a computer screen and seeing a simulated baseball. And he had a, a kind of a joystick or something in his hand that he had to push a button to decide whether or not to swing at a pitch. And basically what it was doing is measuring his ability to respond to pitch types and pitch recognition, how rapidly he could do that. Uh, what I found interesting about this is that the coaches were treating this as a special case precisely because... Uh, they said, from all other vantage points, from a scouting viewpoint, this guy had one of the best swings, one of the you know most pure swings that they'd ever seen, and yet he couldn't hit the baseball. And so when they ran through this test using the EEG recording technology and the software, they found that, I'm going to quote from the article here, it says, the player's neuronal curve 
was shifted backwards. In other words, he was late recognizing certain pitches and therefore late in deciding whether to swing. Can you help me kind of decode some of what that means? And can EEG training actually make a hitter more capable at, at hitting baseballs, at differentiating between fastball, curveball, slider, that sort of thing? Right. Actually, let's make another distinction here. The article that you're referring to, from from what I understood of the article, the way that they were using EEG mm-hmm. is as a diagnostic tool. They were taking images at you know different points in time while the person was doing this simulation of a swing, and they were detecting at which point there was, in a sense, a hiccup. And, and maybe a slowing of the thought process or a connection from one part of the brain to the other to the, you know, is in, involved in making that kind of a, an action and um, decision. So it was really diagnostic, and that's how it was helpful to those particular researchers to, to be able to point out to the coach, hey, this is exactly where it's happening in this process. Uh, what I'm talking about, neurofeedback training, is actually training the brain to do all of those processes without having to think about it. Hmm. Making all of the things that go into that, you know, swing of the bat happen with such fluidity that there isn't a time gap. So one way I like to compare this is also to the way a car runs. And a car runs on on a couple of things. Number one, needs fuel. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's a bit like our neurotransmitters are the fuel of our brain. A car also runs on an electrical system, and all of the sparks and the electrical messages have to be sent at just the right time. Hmm. And so that I would I would connect that with the EEG training and the EEG that takes place in our brains. So the way our brain is sending electricity needs to be done in a, in a proper timing fashion and with the same amount of force that we need um, for those actions and thoughts and behaviors. So, um, but our, the car needs one more thing, and it needs a transmission and so that it can shift from one thing to the next. It's smoothly without a gap. Hmm. So all of that has to run smoothly together. Same thing with our, you know, that, that batter at, at the plate. You know, he needs to pull all, a lot of systems together at the same time without having to think about it or take the time to stop and think about it. This has to be very fluid. Yeah, because certainly one of the biggest pieces of hitting, aside from just the basic physical mechanics of having a good swing, uh, a lot of it has to do with the timing. A lot of it has to do with being able to detect within fractions of a second the pitch coming out of the pitcher's hand you have to look at the way the seams are spinning you have to kind of quickly plot the trajectory of the ball and decide and predict really if that ball is going to spin drop into the strike zone and if so should I swing should I not swing I I think what I'm gathering from what you're telling me is that where these researchers used uh, EEG data uh, as you said a diagnostic is there kind of a bridge there where neurofeedback training can can smooth out that hiccup so that it does make the, the player perform better. Absolutely. When you think that the brain is the thing that's pulling all of those uh, systems together, then you want to make sure that the brain is firing at the right rate, sending the right messages to the right place in the right amount of time. So that it really is less than milliseconds where all those decisions are made. But when you think about it, uh, you know, you talked about being able to see the seams on a baseball. Your eye is having to make pretty fine calculations in order to see that and to slow the path down in the brain so the brain has that opportunity to respond to it without thinking about it. If a, if a 
a player has to take time to consciously think about it, they're probably already behind the eight ball. Yeah, indeed. Indeed they are. This is all very fascinating. The, the um, question that I wanted to drive towards and the, the sort of the teaser that I've been pitching all week uh, for our listening audience is that, uh, let's just put it this way, there's, there's kind of a common view the sports world, uh, whether it comes from the the, the analysts that you hear, uh, sometimes it's you know the media writers, uh, show hosts. You hear it, it comes from the the fans that absorb this information and kind of regurgitate it. And it, it simply goes like this: if a player is is having a rough patch uh, at the plate or anywhere else necessarily in his performance, we'll we'll, we'll stay with batters at the plate. Uh, he's in a slump. You know, he's zero for thirty and he's not performing. The the common wisdom is that. He doesn't. He doesn't care enough. He needs to get angry. He needs to get riled up. He needs to, you know, the, maybe go smash some water coolers. You know, or, or uh, some advocate having the coach, you know, go down and sort of take him behind the woodshed and yell at him and tell him to get his head in the game and this kind of thing. It's basically this idea, though, that if you if you invest more emotionally, then this somehow will translate into the next time I go to the plate, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more focused. It's going to get me out of my slump. Uh, I mean, a lot of us who are more metric oriented have kind of said, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but uh, I don't necessarily have the the data or the, the science behind that to back that up. So what can you tell me about, you know, that equation? If a, if a player gets riled up and mad, does that help him break out of the slump? Does it not help him break out of the slump? Is it neutral? Where, where does that fit in? Yeah, I think if we, um, you know, I, I, again, a thousand answers I could give you, but my first thought is if a person needs to kind of, marshal their forces in an emotive way with anger that's showing me that there's a problem already behind it so i think we're mixing up the idea of motivation and passion with um concentration focus Mm -hmm. um so again if you have to get angry to get focused that's just to me a symptom of saying you're using a very inefficient manner and a long-term harmful manner to get your brain and your body to act together. So it's really, to me, the anger is a diagnostic tool in itself. Um, so the answer is no. What, what you're promoting or what these, these um, you know, wise sages out there are promoting is, hey, let's, let's work towards flooding, what psychologists call flooding. And we actually know that flooding is, number one, physiologically harmful to the body Hmm. but it also keeps us from uh, making good rational decisions if you want to shoot towards the anger issue in in sports and whether it's beneficial or not i I think the next interview you should do is mike tyson (laughs) wow okay (laughs) how's that working for you Uh Uh (laughs) so no the answer is if you have to use that anger and i'm not going to say it doesn't work from time to time but it's a really poor inefficient long-term solution and it really is inviting um, negative things kind of down the road so i'm really would not be again i would be against that uh as a as kind of a a paradoxical analogy let's let's look at martial arts i mean the amount of force and energy that can be used even in a very small person to break through a brick it's because they have been able to marshal those forces but in a calm focused very energized way Hmm. Hmm. so essentially what you're saying is that science and and the data you have available says that uh what you called flooding 
which I'm assuming is something to do with, you know, too much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get down a path that I can't even explain, but <laughs> flooding the brain basically with with too much uh, neural activity, maybe it does does not help the player get focused and actually perform at peak performance. Flooding actually short circuits the prefrontal cortex where we make all our decisions from in the brain, where we do our analyzing, when we do our problem solving. So flooding is is exactly what you're saying. You you couldn't describe it, but my guess is you've, you've felt it a time or two. <laughs> it's, yes, typically when watching these same players go through their slumps, uh, which I'm sure <laughs> is what causes people to finally say. I, I've, I've long held the theory that when, when fans say things like, ah, this player just doesn't even care anymore, or, he, needs, he needs to get mad, that, uh, frequently what they're doing is projecting their uh, own feelings, you know, of saying, I'm angry, therefore you need to get angry and, and just perform. Yeah, well, I think what they're wishing is that the player would be more engaged and 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 then and actually what they're hoping to see, um, whether they know it or not, they're hoping to see that player flow hmm. and not flood. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. The differentiation between flooding and flowing, and it sounds like smashing water coolers is not necessarily going to help you knock in the next RBI. Well, I think that's just about going to do it for this segment. Monica, I want to thank you again for stopping by. Uh, just to double check and make sure the listeners can get more information on your website at monicamichael.com, also at facebook.com slash ICSGR. That's correct? Yeah, that's it. All right. Thanks so much for stopping by. Hey, thanks for inviting me. And that is going to do it for this fourth episode of the Voice of the Turtle podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride as I fumbled my way through driving the bus without my co-pilot. Wow, how many different transportation metaphors can I use there? Anyway, Rob Rojacki will be back in the saddle. <laughs> There's another one for you. He will be back in the saddle next week. Thank God for that because I got to tell you, sitting here in front of a laptop and talking into a microphone by myself, this has got to be one of the saddest things I've ever done. Anyway, as always, you can connect with me on Twitter at HookSlideBYB or with Rob at BYBRob. You can send us an email at BYBTigers at gmail.com. Of course, visit the site on the web, www.blessyouboys.com. Please go like our page on Facebook at facebook.com slash BYBTigers. And we will see you the next time on The Voice of the Turtle. <laughs>